Here we go. Are you, uh, are you ready? All right, buckle up. Uh, get your seatbelt on. And we are in Acts chapter 2, in the middle of Peter's sermon. And the response of his sermon, and uh, we're going to talk about the idea of conversion today. What is conversion? And so uh, I will need help from God to preach on this subject, and uh, so I ask that you join me to pray. Father, thank you for this morning, and I thank you for you being present with your word in a very powerful way. For your love for us, Father, may it be clear as I preach that you are kind and gracious, even as I begin uh, delineating and explaining uh, our resistance and sin and what that looks like. uh, I pray, Lord, that we will have hearts melted by your gracious and kind love to us. And as we uh, go into serving you this week, Lord, help us think differently about um, our lives, our purpose, Uh, the reasons for living, and help us find a gratitude that is deep and rising to you in thankfulness. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, we'll be looking at the response of Peter's uh, sermon, uh, his conclusion, and then uh, what is asked of Peter and the others gathered there. And uh, we're going to talk about conversion. What is conversion? Uh, what does that look like? Um, I've shared a couple of insights into an encounter I had a few months ago. Uh, Marianne and I and Amaris were traveling back. I think it was, I'm trying to think how far, many, it was at Christmas time, something like that. Uh, we had gone back to, down to Mexico, and uh, we ended up uh, flying uh, from Houston to San Francisco and arriving at San Francisco Airport about midnight and uh, there's not a lot happening at uh, San Francisco Airport midnight. Not a lot of flights, not a lot, a lot of connecting flights. But the, the next Hawaii flight's about 7.30 in the morning. So it looks like we're staying the night in the airport. And uh, you get to know the cleaning crew and uh, that kind of thing. So uh, trying to figure out how can we get some sleep. And I don't know how it happened, but I, I did get a little bit of sleep. Woke up around 5 a.m. and was wandering around to see if there was any coffee, Uh, a very important priority uh, when you haven't really slept that much. So uh, Pete's Coffee in front of Gate 65, I believe it was, uh, is open. It'll let you you know at 5 a.m. exactly, and I was actually the first person in line and uh, thought that was a pretty important achievement there, and so I had a cup of coffee. And um, nearby were two men who sort of looked like lumberjacks a little bit, uh, just kind of had that look to them, and uh, they were reading some leather-bound books, and uh, so I thought, well, I'll sit next to them. I think, is that a Bible? What is that? And uh, so I sat next to them, started off a conversation, and uh, I learned that they were practitioners of Nichiren Buddhism, Nichiren Buddhism. They were from Oregon, and uh, they were... uh, flying back from having gone to some conference, Nichiren Buddhism. And Nichiren Buddhism uh, is founded upon the writings of a, of a Buddhist practitioner back in the 12th century. And he was kind of a reformer, I guess. And so he writes these, 
his thoughts about Buddhism and how to correct it, and so he created a, a following. Uh, and I, I also came to learn there's other like something like 50 different uh, groups of Buddhists around the world, and so this is a, a Japanese version of it. And uh, they actually follow this guy's writings uh, like like a like a scripture. Now, um, I told them I was coming from a Christian perspective, um, and so we had a conversation, um, and I was particularly careful to um, listen to their perspective. They had a lot of important things to say about peace in the world and um, things to live for that bring harmony and that kind of stuff. So we talked, and uh, at one point, though, one of them said that you know, life really is a series of births and deaths and rebirths and deaths. And it's just, that's what life is. It's a series of birth and death, rebirth and re-death, and death. And, and uh, that's what it is. And until you kind of understand that, you really haven't made any progress. And, and so, uh, so that, I thought that was a little unusual. Uh, it's called transmigration of the soul. It's a thought. It is another Eastern religions. So, um, and as I'm interacting with them, I I was listening carefully to the level of certainty that they said that that was that was really a true thing that you die and you're reborn, you die and you re, you're reborn again. And and so, uh, what struck me about that was that this was a pretty high level certainty. I mean, this is really true, true, really true. And so then I said, well, how do you know that? How do you know that? And um, I was waiting for some explanation as to how that happens, and they didn't give me an answer. They said, well, it's just something you learn. It's just something you learn. Uh, It's something that will come upon you. It's an awareness that will come upon you. And so I was sort of left out in uh, the world of, I don't know, rational thought of arguments, of evidence, of, of trying to prove something. And, and they were able to just sort of make this statement about the way things really are, but not have to support it and not have to defend it because it's actually just something you're going to catch on to. So a lot of things could fit into that category, right? You could, you could imagine anything and then explain to someone, well, it's just something you've got to catch on to. It's just something you've got to learn. Now, what I was trying to do was to gently and lovingly push up against that. And I explained to them that Christianity is about real events that happen in real history that the claims of the disciples and apostles is that Jesus rose from the dead. That we're dealing with blood and bodies and tombs and uh, dirt and burial. And in other words, we're in this world where this happened. It is a historically driven faith. It is not lodged up somewhere in someone's imagination. It is rooted in the world we live in. 
Now, that is a vitally important thing because that is the central core of the Christian faith, that we are not following the philosophy of Jesus or even the teachings of Jesus. We are following Jesus who rose from the dead and the foundation of our faith is not faith. It is in the physical reality that Jesus rose from the dead. The book you have is claiming, as Francis Schaeffer would say, true truth. He used to use this phrase with with hippies in the 60s who would end up backpacking through Europe and end up in Switzerland where he was teaching. And he couldn't quite get them to understand that it was like not just true, but it was true truth. That would get them thinking like, wow, man, that's heavy. True truth. Yeah, like real truth. Real truth. And so how different is Peter's sermon when he begins to talk about real things like crucifying someone, a real event that took place, and someone conspired to do that? And was there a plan behind it? Was there a reason behind it? And Peter is preaching. God had ordained this event. You had conspired against Jesus And God outwitted you. God overcame your plan. God used his will to bring about good from your wickedness. This is an explanation of the event of Jesus being crucified, buried, rising from the dead. And now in Acts chapter 1, we have him ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from here he is now beginning to reign as a king, the king. The Holy Spirit has fallen as the first gift and primary gift of Jesus, who is the ascended king. How do you know Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father? The Holy Spirit has been poured out. And the beginning of of the restoration of all things. All things, matter, bodies, the restoration of all things is underway. It has begun. So, life is not a series of births and rebirths, and finally you'll just somehow get it. We live before a holy God, accountable, as human beings before him. And when we have preaching that highlights our moral condition before God, when preaching highlights the core issue between ourselves and God, which raises the question, how can a holy God accept sinners? We now begin to have questions in our hearts And we begin to press in in order to have that question answered. How is it possible that I as a rebel can meet with God and be at peace 
with God. And the answer is explainable. The answer is understandable. The answer is reasonable. The answer is an open secret to the world. To anyone who wants to know, to anyone who is curious about the claims of Christ, it can be found. No secret handshakes. No uh, whispers in the, in the hallway about how to access uh, you know, some, some magic name for God. This is an open secret. This is the proclamation time of the gospel to all who would want to hear. A real person really died. He said he would raise his body on the third day. He appeared to 500 people, and he has now taken on a new role in the universe. His reign has begun. So Peter is now explaining the phenomenon of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has arrived. People who are Jewish have come from various parts of the world to uh, celebrate this Jewish festival. And believers who are followers of Jesus have been waiting for for this moment. And the Spirit arrives on them and different languages are spoken by these individuals And people who have traveled from these areas are hearing the gospel preached in their own language. They're curious, what is this about? Some people think they're drunk. Peter steps up and says, no, they're not drunk. This is what was uh, prophesied by the prophet Joel. This is an evidence of the last days. The Spirit has fallen upon all kinds of people, men, women, children, old, old folks, everyone, there's been a what's called a democratization of the Spirit. This is an evidence of the last days have arrived. The Spirit is given to everyone, not just certain leaders of Israel's, in Israel's history. The Spirit is given to everyone, and Peter has their attention. So he then begins to present to them that they, some in the crowd, not all of them, but some in the crowd, were there the day Jesus died. Some of them who were residents of Jerusalem were part of that conspiracy to crucify Christ. And they have been carrying on as if life would be just the way it was. And little did they know they would arrive on the day of Pentecost and hear Peter preaching and their hearts would be cut Right to, the, right, to the, right to the very core of their being. They would have no other place to hide. And they cry out to Peter, what must we do, brothers? Peter had explained to them that they had crucified Jesus. Jesus is now Lord. He is now King. What would they do? Now, there's many words to describe sin, but they are aware of their sin. If we're going to explore the idea of conversion, conversion really has two aspects to it, faith and repentance. Conversion is a a coin with two sides to it, faith and repentance. Now, let me describe to you, though, what it means for them when it says to them that they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They are desperate. What are they feeling? What are they sensing? What is overcoming their hearts? A number of things. We generally use the term sin, right? And there's sort of this sense that we all understand what that means. 
But in the Bible, there's multiple meanings for the word sin, and I just want to explore those briefly with you. For instance, sin can be transgression, right? You've heard that term, transgression. Transgression is stepping over a boundary. It's walking across, passing a boundary line. It is committing an act of trespass. So when you think of Adam and Eve and their first sin, it was clearly crossing a line, a line of demarcation, transgression. Another word for sin is iniquity. You've heard of that term. Iniquity is uh, a word, closest word for us in English, uh, or a synonym would be ad, uh, adversity. This means there's a bitterness in our heart toward God. It's not just what, when, we, when we are com- committing sin or engaged in sin, we're actually saying something about our view of God at that moment. It's what is behind the transgression. It's the crookedness of the soul the perverseness of the choice. It refers to the character and spirit in which we live in opposition to God. The inner person or the inner spirit of the person is out of line with God and the will of God. So it goes deeper than transgression. It goes to the root from which transgression springs. It has to do with our relation to God's law, that clenched fist. I'll be on my own. I can make it on my own. I don't need anyone to direct me, advise me, coach me, train me. It has to do with our relation to God's law and the will of God, or the Apostle Paul would use the word lawlessness. This involves guilt and condemnation. So that's the word iniquity. Here's another phrase, breaking shalom, breaking shalom. Shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. Disturbing the peace between God and ourselves and the peace with others. Transgressions and iniquities lack shalom. To sin against someone else is to break peace with them. The Heidelberg Catechism actually uses the word in describing God and our relationship to God, saying we actually hate him. We do not want peace with him nor are we peaceful toward those he has made. It's hard for us to imagine this. We've all been brought up in the therapeutic age where we've all thought that we are by nature good at heart. And what makes us stray this way or that way is maybe some bad parents or lack of education or where we grew up or the lack of vitamins in our body. or what. There's a lot of excuses for our behavior, and we latch onto those pretty readily. The Bible says that within us is a bitterness and a hatred of God's reign over us. At the heart of us is an emotional way of interacting with people, particularly if they bother us, particularly if they disturb us. We have a, we're, 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 we're disturbed in our relationship to others. Our emotional center of life is disturbed. This center of rebellion is ultimately against God. In the Reformed faith, really, what you're sensing is that we're, we're not that interested in defending people. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if you picked that up or not, but the, the, the Reformed faith is, is not um, man-centered. We hope our worship is not man-centered, 
The Reformed faith is saying man is the guilty party, the recipient of sheer grace and grace alone. Another word besides this, this idea of breaking shalom is disease. The situation needs healing. A radical and chronic condition of the entire spiritual being of man. The, the springs of life have been affected. Our whole being is being touched by something is wrong. The old English described he, uh, can describe it in the way that says there is no soundness in our being. No soundness. So those are, I hope, helpful um, ideas there that give you more of a, f- a full sense of, of sin. Now, when these individuals here are listening to this, can you imagine that they tried to put their life back together, tried to go on as if things were normal again in Jerusalem, and they are held accountable for their treachery against an innocent individual, and it, the whole of their actions are brought back to them. They cry out, what shall we do? In conversion, there is no looking for an excuse. In conversion, there is no sense in which I am trying to justify myself. I am not counting all the good things I've done in life, comparing myself with my neighbor. In conversion, I am raw before the holiness of God one-on-one with God, with no mediator. Terrifying. And the character of these people is being revealed to them. They may have impressed their neighbor that morning. They may have standing in the community, but they are standing before God and His holiness and their actions towards Jesus. They are being unmasked. The pretensions, the outward show, is being stripped away. One author described it as a terrible disintegration of the human personality. They are falling apart. Sin in its wickedness is being seen and understood. In another sense, what's happening here is that the law of God is being pressed upon them, and the first sense that the law gives us is of its curse. The law presses guilt upon us. And so this is what they're experiencing. And they're crying out, what must we do to be saved? This means they have no other clever ideas to pull out of their pocket and say, well, this, this must work. Or there's no excuse making. They are laid bare. And they're willing to go public with this. They're willing to say this in public, which is quite remarkable. In the midst of this moral storm, we hear Peter offer words of comfort. And he says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Remarkable. That the offering of repentance is given to those who played a role in the crucifixion of Christ. Parallel, Jesus offering to the thief on the cross an assurance that he would indeed be with Jesus in paradise. Peter, in the same spirit, offers a loving, merciful statement to them. 
this Jesus is available to you as a compassionate Savior. God will hear your heart cry, and Jesus will be your Savior. Peter offers the hope of the gospel. Psalm 110, one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament, and he will reign until he makes his enemies as a footstool to his feet. This is Jesus coming after his enemies. And wouldn't you expect if Jesus is coming after his enemies, he would slay them from heaven? That the moment he's empowered on high, it would be a time for judgment day. Remarkable. He comes after his enemies with grace and mercy, and he offers to them the mercy of forgiveness. And it is through his word of through an approved and appointed spokesperson, it is through his word that he offers this form of kingship. He begins to reign over these who are repenting. He begins to fulfill Psalm 110. There's a very unknown or rather unknown prophecy in Zechariah 12.10. And it's talking about a day when repentance will visit Israel. Repentance will visit Israel. By the way, that was one of the great calls of the prophets, is to repent and turn. Zechariah 12.10 says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, listen to this, a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. What is happening here is that they realize that the gift of the son, the son of David, was given to them, and they are mourning like a a parent would at the loss of a child. That's the level of this grief. They see what they have done to contribute to this, and they are mourning as if, as a parent, as if a child has died. Now, what we're seeing here is conversion. Conversion is vital. Conversion is repentance and faith. But before conversion will happen, Jesus has to be desired. Jesus has to be wanted. And the heart has to be changed. And so what we understand is that conversion is repentance and faith coming to the conscious awareness of an individual. Repentance can look like tears. Faith can look like joy. These are are emotions that have now come into the consciousness of a person. So conversion is what we experience, what we do. We we repent and we practice faith. Conversion is what we do as we become aware of how beautiful Jesus is, how right he is, how wonderful he is, how good he is, how just he is, how it is good that he is the king, I'm not ashamed of him. This is good. And prior to these attitudes, you must be born again. You would never have these things on your own. Jesus 
prior to being regenerated, is what the theologians call it, prior to being born again, you would have no interest in him. You are living life. You're doing just fine. The name of Jesus is somewhat of a, of a I don't know, a bothersome. Maybe, maybe you have some nice thoughts about Jesus. The necessity is that we are regenerated prior to conversion. The presupposition of Scripture is that apart from God's grace, we are spiritually dead, Ephesians 2, 1. This means that in and of ourselves we can do nothing to please God. So just as conception and birth bring new physical life, so the work of regeneration brings new spiritual life. Through the new birth, we gain a new desire and new ability to serve God. It is a sovereign act of God beginning a new spiritual life in us. Of course, Jesus, speaking to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Pilate was standing maybe about 18 inches from Jesus, and he asks, what is truth? And yet, the truth is standing right in front of him. Apart from the regenerating work of God, we will not desire Jesus, and we need this sovereign act of God. This means that we've come to appreciate deeply, to see deeply, understand, not just an observation, not just a a glance, but it's that we see more deeply, we enter into and actually enter the kingdom and begin to understand more fully what is being asked of us. Regeneration, our knowledge of God, changes. Here we see the effect of Peter's sermon. Now, I stand before you as one who attended church at 19, thought I could survive the the experience, stand up, sing a song, say a prayer, and leave. That was my goal in the morning that I attended church in North County, San Diego, when I was 19 years old. I had other things to do, but I went as, as a guest of the family that kept inviting me to church. So really my motive was to get them off my back. Well, I heard the gospel preached in Acts chapter 9 of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Jesus is alive, reigning over people, knocking people off donkeys. Amazing. Not just lost in history, not just a philosopher, not just a top ten moral teacher. It was very disturbing, by the way, because I could sense and feel him looking right into my life. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't have any Christian language, didn't understand the words to say. And so I just cried out. I knew that Saul of Tarsus became converted on the road to Damascus. I had no other knowledge of what what to say. All I said in my heart was, God, would you do in me what you did in that man? That's all I said. I didn't know. Four days later, a friend of mine, John Lucas, was talking to me, and I was explaining to him that I couldn't stop thinking about Jesus and the Bible and this guy named Saul and all this story going on and on. And John looks at me and he says, I think you became a Christian. And I said, I did? That was the level of my understanding. But to want Jesus, to desire him, 
takes God's sovereignty to open our eyes, give us new hearts. Multiple prophets talk about this, that the need for a new heart, the new birth, gives us a new understanding of who Jesus is and begins radical changes in us. And the first evidence of regeneration is conversion. What does conversion look like? Repentance and faith. It percolates up into our consciousness. We begin to realize more clearly, as we never had understood before, the holiness of God and Jesus as our substitute, and we cling on to him. We cling on to the one we would normally have just left and not have been interested in. So God has brought us in, and he has converted us. Let me ask you, are you converted? When you hear the name Jesus, is is his name sweet to you? When you think about sin, is it repulsive to you? Do you see it as God sees it? And do you cling to Jesus as your Savior? You could use the language of receiving him or accepting him. That's fine. But are you bowing to him, recognizing him as Lord and Savior? The two go together. Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter now recognizes that they must repent and be baptized. And we go on to just explain, look at at the assurance that he's given them and then we're done. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. This is entering into the sign of the new covenant and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children. By the way, all the covenants of God include children. And so here is the covenant, the new covenant of grace. And it includes the children. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And Peter is exhorting them, turn, change, cling to to Christ. And then he says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. By the way, as the book of Acts unfolds, someone's keeping track of numbers. And they're being added to the number. And this means that God calls you to join a church, to join this church. It would be, pre- be wonderful. But God calls you to associate publicly with his people. And, of course, this is what happens as these folks are baptized. Now, let me conclude this. The, the key evidence of conversion in this passage is in verse 37. Brothers, what shall we do? The key evidence of conversion is a question. And if you don't have any questions in your heart, I want to say with assurance, you're not converted. If the proclamation of the gospel doesn't arise any questions, well, wait, I want to be sure, Pastor. That's a good question. Well, what what does it mean to trust Jesus? That's a great question. Well, I don't know much about my Bible. Can you explain it more to me? That's a beautiful question. All questions are good. There are no dumb questions. But the great danger is there's no question. That you're self-content. You're sure about what life's all about. You're confident in what 
makes life work. And you have a distant view of God. May God have mercy on all of us that we would see more fully and more readily our need for a Savior. And may he be forming in us questions that will lead to our salvation. Let's pray. Father, cause questions to arise in our hearts, even as many here are believers. What does it look like to grow? What does it look like to strengthen the church? What does it look like to serve others? Father, thank you for how powerful regeneration is. Father, that we are given a new nature. And that new nature loves you. That new nature is freed to see you more clearly and beautifully. Thank you for my friends today. I pray, Lord, that the sweetness of forgiveness will be central to everything that has been preached. Lord, be with us as we celebrate now the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Speak to us through these visible signs. Assure us that we have a right to claim Jesus as our King. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. And as usual, would love to hear from you if there's a question in your heart about anything, particularly any of you who are beginning to think, do I trust Jesus this way? Have I repented this way? Would love, would love to hear from you, and I know all the elders would as well. Well, God in his goodness.